0: work we live and if we don't we die it's survival a bad year for everyone ray we get no pleasure out of foreclosure
1: i want us through the mine the company all of them
0: you can't win none of those women will take your side
1: whether you win or lose you stand up you must feel pretty good mr higgins you'll probably get a raise after they fire all these poor people you benedict arnold in sheep's clothing who put you up to this Do you know what this means? What it says? It says that you and your husband are Bolsheviks, is it true? No, of course not.
0: We gotta get equality on the job. Then we'll work on these other things. Give it to the men. I see. The
1: men. Your strike may be for your demands. But what wives want,
0: that comes later, always later. Now don't you start talking against the union again. Clips from Northern Lights, North Country, the Devil and Miss Jones, 10,000 Black Men Named George, and Salt of the Earth, five unsung films that dramatize America's rich labor history. According to Peter Dreyer, E.P. Clapp, Distinguished Professor of Politics and Professor Urban and Environmental Policy at Occidental College in Los Angeles. Here's our conversation with Professor Dreyer.
1: We'd like to start off the session with the question of what is the movie that you most remember from your childhood that had like, you were like, whoa, oh,
2: this is movies. Uh, this is what a movie looks like. Oh, yeah. that's a great, that's a great question. um uh, Let's see, I would say um, it was probably uh, Godzilla.
0: whoa wow. ah. <laughs> there's a new one. We haven't heard that one before. Yeah, it was- uh.
2: It scared me to death. There was a Japanese horror film about a huh? a big dinosaur-type monster, and I probably saw it when I was seven or eight years old. And it scared the shit out of me, and um, uh, and it really uh, it was very um, it made a big impression on me. I mean, it was it's not a good movie. It has no socially redeeming value whatsoever. Uh, I I have seen it once or twice as an adult, and um and uh it is so transparently poorly made. Um but nevertheless, um at the time it had a big impression on me. You
0: had a really terrific piece uh recently, Peter, in the conversation on five unsung films that dramatize America's rich labor history. And you know we've been seeing a lot of these these labor film lists and they they you know have the usual suspects you had i thought some really interesting choices um in fact let's just start with the first one that that i'm familiar with but i think a lot of people will not be which is a 1978 film called Northern Lights why why did you pick it and why did you choose it as number 1
2: Northern Lights is an incredibly underappreciated film um about a movement that took place in the uh, first uh, in the second decade of the 20th century called the nonpartisan League and it was a movement of farmers in uh, South Dakota North Dakota Wisconsin and uh, and Minnesota the film itself takes place um, in um, in North Dakota um, and it's basically about how a small group of farmers, some of whom were socialists, um, organized this movement against the banks and the railroad companies and the grain companies that were exploiting the farmers who were often losing their home. Um, And the film depicts a real story about how um, the nonpartisan league, which was a political party as well as a movement, elected the governor and the state legislature in North Dakota in 1916 and 1917. Um, and how the, uh, the organizers as one character in the film have to get in their old beat up cars in the middle of winter and drive miles from one farm to another and persuade the farmers that a, politics can make a difference and that voting for the nonpartisan league candidate can improve the condition of farmers. And while he's out uh, traveling, organizing the other farmers back home, his brother is trying to keep the farm alive and is in a desperate situation. And his wife is lonely because she doesn't see him very often. And so it's a movie about gender and sexism. It's a, a movie about class. It, um, it views farmers as workers, even though they are family owned farmers. Um, and it talks about the importance of politics.
0: Let's, uh, let's move on. And I'm going to actually jump out of your order to go to North Country. You may not know this, Peter, but uh, Elise, among her many hats, is that she is president of the Coalition of Labor Union Women. Oh, great. And so, Elise, I just let, let me just throw this to you. Let me just get your reaction.
1: I'm surprised that it's not out there more. Right. So right. It was like here's Northern Lights, and I was like, "What?" You know. And then North Country, I thought, you know, I've seen it once, and i i was I was surprised that it's not out there more, especially around the sexual harassment issue. The whole. Thank you. You know, hashtag D2, right. you think that I would be like, here, yeah, take a look at this, because it's, right. it's it's powerful. It's the only film that I can think of that shows really the the uh, pain of sexual harassment. Right. This isn't just like somebody, you know, calling you sweetie or, or grabbing your ass. It's like life-threatening. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and I know this from women in the building trades, that this is not a uncommon occurrence to this day uh not to mention what happens in other workplaces right, right. so that you caught this is and, and and bringing it forward i will do the same i will i will i will bring it to the coalition of labor union women
2: right. well again it's a film from 2005 north country so it's based on a true story mm-hmm. and it's also like northern lights from um uh the upper midwest in this case it's uh, north country means minnesota which some people are familiar with Bob Dylan's song, Girl from North Country. He's talking about from the Iron Range of uh, of Minnesota, which is what this is from. So in in a nutshell, uh, uh, Shalise Theron, the actress, plays a a woman named Josie Ames, who um, is a single mom, uh, faced abuse uh, from her husband, leaves him, Moves back to her hometown in Northern Minnesota in the Iron Range. And against everybody's advice, gets a job in an iron mine, which uh, is a very dangerous job, but it's also very well-paying. Right. And she needs it to support her kid. Um, and as you were sort of indicating from day one, she faces enormous abuse from the men all, all the others are men, all the other minors are men, um, and uh, and the worst kind of abuse, not, not just whistles and slaps on the butt, but real, you know, physical abuse, as well as, you know, all kinds of other kinds of uh, verbal abuse, um, and she puts up with it, but then, um, you know, she doesn't want to look weak, but then she realizes she's got to do something about it, because it's, hurting her ability to be a good parent and so forth. Um, and first she goes to the company and says, you know, this is a problem and they really don't care. And again, this is long before uh, sexual harassment, Me Too was uh, you know, was made illegal.
1: Right? It's a, and it's a powerful scene too. It's not right. what I expected right. at right. all.
2: Right. And then she goes to the union. Right. Uh, and says, look, I'm a worker here and I'm getting abused. And they it's all men with one or two exceptions and they don't care either. And the women who work, who are either the wives of the miners and a couple of them have jobs not going deep into the mine, but they work for the same company, they're afraid to support her because they know that if they support her, they will face some of the same abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she basically sues them. Um, and in real life, as in the movie, she wins the suit. Um, and it really becomes uh, the first major lawsuit in the country that helped make sexual harassment a violation of workers' rights. Um, and it tells it in a very powerful way with uh, great acting, uh, a lot of great characters. Um, where she maintains her dignity in the face of all this um, abuse. Um, even her parents don't support her at first. You know, they're, right. they're kind of embarrassed that their daughter is A, a single mom, and B, that she chose to go work in the mine. And they don't want to face the abuse from their neighbors and friends. So eventually they come around. I don't want to give away too much, but um, but it's it's a you know, it, it shows. Uh, both how the company and the union are complicit were complicit in different ways but also shows um, eventually some of the solidarity that um, we hope unions will show when some of the members of the union uh, d- disagree with their fellow uh, union members and support her mm-hmm. uh, and the scene at a meeting where that happens is very dramatic and uh, and a wonderful, you know, and it and it's not just like it happened overnight.
0: All right, we're going to move on. I'm going to jump back to your number two. Uh, great pick, by the way. So the Devil and Miss Jones. Different film, different film. In
2: 1941, that's the name of this film. Uh, is part of what you could call the New Deal Popular Front films, where um, it's kind of a screwball comedy which was very popular at the time. But underneath the screwball comedy it's a very serious issue about the about labor and unions. Um, it's, uh, it, it stars a very famous actor, Charles Coburn, who plays um, a guy named John Merrick, who is the richest man in the world. He's so rich he doesn't even know all the things he owns.
0: He's, he's the Jeff Bezos of the time.
2: Yes, absolutely, right. Um, And it turns out that he's reading the newspaper one day and he sees in the paper a protest at a department store in New York City, where he lives, where they're hanging him in effigy. The workers are hanging him in effigy. So this is based on, um, among other things, a series of strikes in department stores in New York, Detroit, and other big cities. Uh, in the late 30s and early 1940s. So, if, so he sees himself being in the newspaper um, hung in FG. He didn't even know he owned this department store. It, it, it piques his curiosity. And so he decides he's going to get a job in this department store. And he winds up in the shoe department to find out, you know, what's, what's going on with these workers that they're, you know, that they're complaining about. Uh, their conditions in him, not out of sympathy, but out of curiosity, right? So he winds up, um, he goes sort of underground, right, to ferret out the agitators of the union. Um, and it turns out to be this, this store clerk, um, who, you know, is a kind of a feisty, um, a feisty uh, worker. Um, and uh, and then he also winds up falling in love with another store clerk. So they start hanging out. Uh, the the two clerks, the two women clerks, this guy, the richest man in the world, and the union organizer who's dating the other woman, who's the union leader. So they get to know each other because they go to the park, they go to the beach, they go to Coney Island. These four people, the richest man in the world, these two women clerks, one of whom is a the union leader and the union organizer Bob Cummings, and they go uh, hang out with each other, and eventually he begins to see their point of view. Um, and begins to uh, sympathize with them. Actually, now that's the unrealistic part of the film. I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, and um, and then he winds up marrying the clerk that he loves, and you know it's a. All things happy, happily ever after kind of thing. It gives them the raise and the hour changes and so forth that they're asking for. Um, but it was definitely inspired by uh, in the late 30s, these sit-down strikes that happened um, at the Woolworths uh, store in New York City and uh, other department stores. In fact, there were strikes at about 15 different department stores in New York City at the time. Um, and it has um, it has that kind of you know the movie love story where the rich guy marries you know winds up falling in love with a working class girl uh, and everybody's happily ever after and it's there's a similar theme in another movie that didn't make my list but um, was uh, one of my all time favorite films in this regard it's Pajama Game
0: right right
2: which is a, a film about uh, workers in a um, uh, and a pajama factory in New York. And uh, Bonnie Raitt's father, John Raitt, who was a big Broadway star, uh, plays the, the manager of the, of the factory. And he falls in love with the union organizer. And, you know, can, <laughs> can, a, can a boss and a worker find love, you know, kind of story.
0: All right, yeah. moving along. We got to get to 10,000 black men named George. So um, in the 1930s, uh, a. Philip Randolph,
2: who is probably best known for uh, help, being the lead organizer of the 1963 March on Washington, who, who at the time was a combination labor leader and civil rights leader, uh, a brilliant speaker, a journalist. He was the editor of a left-wing black newspaper in Harlem called The Messenger, Black Messenger. He, um, he went around uh, on trains all over the country, organizing the the porters, or the the waiters, basically on the trains, on these sleeping car um, trains uh, called Pullman cars, were made by the Pullman Company in Chicago, outside of Chicago, and it was one of the best jobs you could get if you were an African American man and, uh, at the time because uh, you got to travel. Um, And it was also a way to um, uh, get to know the country. One of the little known facts about um, these porters is that uh, the major black newspapers at the time, two of them were the Pittsburgh Courier and the Chicago Defender. And, uh, And they were based in Pittsburgh and Chicago, but they became national newspapers people all over the country, including in small towns in the deep South, African-Americans could read the Pittsburgh Courier and the Chicago Defender, which were the sort of New York Times of the black community, except they were fairly progressive, um, particularly the Courier. Um, so how did how did this newspaper, the Pittsburgh Courier produced in Pittsburgh, get to Selma, Alabama, right? the porters would sneak them on, the blackboard would sneak them on the train and throw them off uh, the train to people waiting at different stops all over the country. And they would spread the word of these newspapers. And that's how that happened. So anyway, so um, the job was very exploitive. uh, And one of the things that uh, was very demeaning for the black Pullman porters was that uh, they weren't treated as individuals. They were treated as, you know, basically servants by the white customers on these sleeping car trains. And the trains were owned by this company called the Pullman Company, which was owned by a guy named George Pullman. And so the demeaning way in which white customers treated these black porters was to call them all by the same name, which was George. And so uh, 10,000 black men named George is where that comes from. That's fairly obscure, but uh, that's how it happened. And A. Philip Randolph uh, with a a, a steering committee of other black porters, of black porters, basically organized the first black trade union in the United States, the first successful large black trade union in the country. By organizing these porters. And it took them to over 20 years before the Pullman Company um, recognized them. And only after Franklin Roosevelt was elected president and Congress passed a law, sort of comparable to the National Labor Relations Act, which gave uh, railroad workers, por- porters, the right to unionize. Um, um, and so, and then it became a, a very important union. Um, for example, many of the leaders of the civil rights movement came out of that union. Yeah, uh,
1: what that made me think of was uh, Rosina Tucker and the International Ladies' Auxiliary to the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. Uh, just sort of looking up the role of women uh, in that because the women, the maids were also part of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. Right,
2: right. Uh, that point wasn't made very clearly in the film.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not at all, Not, I, in fact, when you just, I 1st I've heard of it. So can, can you just talk a bit about that?
1: Okay, so a lot of the uh, the maids uh, who, you know, they'd cleaned the berths and all that kind of good stuff, uh, did manicures for the passengers, <clears throat> um, were uh, employees and relatives of, of the male union members formed the Women's Economic Council, which it, we got recognized as the International Ladies' Auxiliary to the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters in 1938. So many of these women worked in New York's garment industry and or part of the International Garment Workers Union. But Rosina Parker, her husband was fired due to his union work, and she successfully demanded his reinstatement. Uh, and she became a founding member of the International uh, uh, Ladies
2: Auxiliary and yeah. a
1: civil rights activist in the DC area.
2: Great, yeah, that's a great, There's a. Yeah, you know, what's wonderful about this is how um, uh, the intersection of the women's movement, the civil rights movement, the labor Mm -hmm. movement, you can see in all these films.
0: All right, so let's wrap up with, uh, I've saved uh, the classic uh, labor film that many people, when they think of a labor film, think of Salt of the Earth from 1954.
2: Well, you know, uh, if I had to rank the best labor film ever made, uh, as a forum film, I would call it, I would use The
0: Organizer. Okay.
2: It was Marcello Mastroianni. But um, I think Salt the Earth inspired The Organizer because uh, it was so bold in its time. So to set the scene here, this was um, also based on a true story. Not only was it based on a true story, but the people involved in the strike the early 1950s strike of the Mine Mill and Smelters Union, which was a left-wing led union, a lot of their members and their family members, including their wives, are in the film and play important roles. So um, this was a film made 1954 at the height of the McCarthy era. Um, uh, the Mine Mill and Smelters Union had already been kicked out of the CIO for its during the Red Scare. Uh, because of its uh, communist uh, leadership, um, uh, and so in order to make the film, no Hollywood, um, no Hollywood studio would touch it. Even though the uh, the people that wrote the film, uh, Michael Wilson, and the uh, people who produced the uh, film, and the people that directed the film, uh, Herbert Biberman had all won or been nominated for Academy Awards, were very well known in Hollywood, but they'd all been blacklisted. And so no one would touch them. So they raised money from the union and from other uh, rich radicals at the time, communists, to make this film. But it was very, uh, very threadbare budget, you know. And uh, it takes place um, in New Mexico and they went down to New Mexico to film it. And while they were filming it, I'll tell this story in a second. But while they were filming it, the FBI, the local cops had helicopters over the the the, the film scene, over the set, to disrupt them. Um, in the middle of making the film, they deported the actress that played the lead role, uh, uh, a woman named Esperanza. Um, and um, they did everything they can to discredit. It. And after the film was made, because the projectionist union was a conservative union at the time, they would they, their members refused to show it. So there were hardly any movie theaters that would show the film. And so it was made in 1954, but most people that have ever heard of it didn't hear about it until the mid 60s when some progressive college students uh, who were sympathetic to labor and race and gender issues discovered it. And again, back then it was real. They had to find copies of it. There were hardly any copies of it. And they had to find the real-to-real. The Mind Mill and Smelters Union had some copies of it and made a few more so that people could show it. But I would say even today, it's not a well-known movie except on the left. So, the story is um, of uh, these mostly mexican Mexican- American miners, zinc miners, um, who go on strike over safety issues. And you know all the white miners in the uh, in that mine in New Mexico work in pairs, but the uh, the Mexican miners have to work on their own. And so it's much more dangerous. And there is a explosion in the mine. And um, and it's the last straw, and so the Mexican uh, American miners go on strike, uh, and the question is, will the white miners support them? Um, The union organizer, uh, who's uh, depicted in the film, is uh, was the real union organizer, (laughs) and he basically says uh, to the to the leaders, the Mexican leaders you need to teach the white miners about Mexican culture uh, if you're going to get their support. And so that happens in the film. Um, so they go on strike, um, uh, and then the uh, mine gets an injunction, mine company gets an injunction to stop their picket, which is doable under the, the Taft-Hartley Act, which had been passed a couple of years earlier. And so they have to stop, they don't want to stop picketing, but um, uh, they have to do that or else they'll all get arrested. So um, the wives, particularly the wives of the leader of the Mexican miners, a guy named Juan Chacon, uh, in real life, the leader of the, the local there, decide, well, there's nothing in the Charlie Act or the injunctions that the women that are not miners can't pick it and their children can pick it. So they take over the picket line while the um, uh, you know while the, the the men have to stop, and the men some of them are feeling um, emasculated by that, you know, like we have to let the women stand up for us. We can't do it ourselves. Um, and at one point, the Juan Chacon's wife confronts him and says, "Look, you know." Uh, I know you don't want us women helping you, but you know you can't win this strike without us. Um, and they have a kind of understanding that you know she's a valuable member of the family, but also a valuable member of the union. And the women get the right to vote in the union, even though they're not the workers uh, in the union. And so um, it's a film about class. It's a film about race. It's a film about gender. And I think it's fair to say that is the first uh, movie that was intentionally consciously, what today we would call, excuse me, intersectional, right? You can't avoid these issues of race, gender and class in this one film. Um, And it's done uh, extremely well, partly because it was written by this guy, Michael Wilson, who won an Academy Award for Bridge Over the River Kwai and several other films, but he couldn't accept the award because he was blacklisted and he'd written the film under an assumed name, right, with a front. So um, it's a wonderful film, very dramatic. Um, The amateur actors in the film, who were the union leaders and uh, their families, their children and wives, the the miners and their and do a great job of acting the guy that plays the union leader who is the union leader plays himself did a great job
1: well you know i mean i saw it when it was re-released uh and we showed it at the national labor college and there happened to be a delegation of women trade unionists from croatia uh, who were visiting and they watched the film and at the end of it, one of them stood up and said you call this communist? <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, in the United States in, in 1954, yeah, they would call this communist, because this isn't communist. So, uh, but uh, What, I, what struck me about all these films, though, though is this is what they do and what they did was they show the life of workers as being more than just their union. And in particular for women, this isn't just about, oh, you know, I just want to go out and earn some extra money. It's like, I need this money. I'm here, and that activism that they led is something that you didn't see in the in the mainstream.
2: That's right. Um, yeah. let, let me throw out two uh, two other things about um, Salt of the Earth. Um, there's there are two movies about Salt of the Earth. <laughs> One is a documentary about the making of the film, mm-hmm. where they interview the actors and the people in the in the community. Um, and the union leaders. It's called A Crime to Fit the Punishment. And you you can find it. It's not hard to find. It's a pretty uh, wonderful documentary about the struggles they had to go through just to make the damn film. And the other is a film called One of the Hollywood Ten, which is a dramatic film starring um, Jeff Goldblum, who plays Herbert Biberman, the director of the of uh, Salt of the Earth, who was a, a well-known director who was, as I mentioned earlier, was blacklisted and couldn't work again. Um, and so, and then there's about at least two books written about both the the zinc miners' strike and the making of the film. So the film has a has a, a history of its own beyond the actual film itself. Um, it's inspired lots of other people, creative people, to to draw on the inspiration from this film to make other films and to write books about it.
0: Well, Peter Dreyer, thank you so much for reminding us of these five great labor films and um, they sort of expanding your class out to include the the listeners of of Labor Goes to the Movies. We really appreciate it.
2: Uh, It was my pleasure. Nice to meet you, Elise, and good to see you again, Chris.
0: All right. Take care. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Elise and I hope you enjoyed the conversation about five unsung films that dramatize America's rich labor history with Peter Dreyer, E.P. Clamp, Distinguished Professor of Politics and Professor Urban and Environmental Policy at Occidental College in Los Angeles. We've got links to the films in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.
1: want to shut down the mine
2: everyone.